This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Assassin-friendly settings. Breaking into game design. Plot contrivances. And synarchy. Hey, Robin, your Kickstarter campaign for Feng Shui 2 is in progress, even as we speak, closing on Friday, October 17th. How's it going? Well, we're recording this in advance, so to find out where we're at, head over to Kickstarter and search for Feng Shui 2, action movie role-playing, Robin Laws, or Atlas Games. Statistically speaking, you're probably about to smash through another stretch goal. We have arranged our stretch goals for easy smashing. Like panes of glass being carried across a Hong Kong street, perhaps. And for role players inexplicably tuning into our show for the first time, remind us what Feng Shui is. It's the classic action movie role-playing game inspired by the giddy, ultra-violent heights of Hong Kong cinema, now making a golden comeback in a revved-up and super-tuned all-new edition. And to mix up various action genres, from gravity-defying martial arts to blood spattered gunplay, it features the key war. Yeah, the player characters fight across key time periods to control key sites of geomantic power and thus history itself. And as you've been saying, you've gone back to this much-beloved game that changed the way a lot of people played and made it, would you dare say, fasterer and furiouserer? I am confident in that statement. Who do you want to play, Ken? A supreme martial artist, a wily sorcerer, an icy cool killer on a bullet-strewn path to redemption? Because I am the cop of magic, clearly I am the magic cop. Well, look at because there's a hopping vampire headed this way. So to repeat those Kickstarter search terms, the fun can be joined by typing in Feng Shui, Action Movie Role-Playing, or Robin D. Laws. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Dreaming Johnny asks Ken and Robin, Why is my name so awesome? And also, (laughs) what sort of setting would be suitable for a story focused on the characters being assassins, or at least a story focusing on assassinations, much like a heist story or such? Besides betraying a fairly violent version of a heist story, uh, Robin, do you have any notions as to ideal assassin settings? The thing that comes to my mind as uh, something that I would adapt if Simon came to me and said, hey, Robin, would you like to do a gumshoe assassins game, which you could totally do because, of course, you're trying to find out where the people are that you are supposed to kill and where the people are that are trying to kill you. I would uh, seek inspiration from The 10th Victim, the late 60s movie uh, with Marcello Mastriani and Ursula Andress, directed by Elio Petri. It's a really cool swinging 60s mod movie based on a Robert Sheckley story, which I think was the seventh victim. I think they added some more victims, rounded up some victims for the film version. And uh, the idea there is that it's a crazy future where you get to wear cool sunglasses and dress all in white. And there are these uh, uh, games Certain people are licensed to participate, and they get to be assassins and kill each other, and each person is assigned one person they're supposed to kill and the other uh, someone who's trying to kill them, and they don't know who's trying to kill them. And uh, So they're allowed to uh, uh, kill each other legally, and I think they're... I forget what the details are in terms of what you're allowed to do to innocent bystanders, uh, but, of course, you wouldn't be ripping off this uh, idea wholesale. You'd be incorporating it into something that uh, that you're doing and adding your own touches to it. And certainly in the 
Hunger Games slash reality contest world that we live in today, this satire of this is even more salient. But more to the point, this structure gives your assassin characters the leeway to operate freely in society because otherwise I think that you would run into a turtling problem because right. uh, if you're constantly needing to operate completely in secret and cover your tracks all of the time and then also avoid the people who will inevitably be chasing you, I think in a lot of, in your standard role-playing group, that becomes very challenging to maintain. Although I guess it's not a problem unlike that faced in Knight's Black Agents. So how would you use the uh, what you learned designing Knight's Black Agents to inform an Assassin's game? Well, if you're doing an Assassin's game, I think that, that that genre, of which there are a lot of examples, as you mentioned, the sort of licensed assassins going around assassinating each other, or you could cross it over with the Drake Magestral licensed thief series that's sort of a sci-fi future where everyone gets to wear capes and have Regency manners, as you do in sci-fi. I, I think that that's a good genre to, to sort of play with, and I think you could call the Assassin game the Assassin game and make it sort of a near future um, maybe not so much social satire as something like um, uh, Battle Royale or whatever, but also you'd leave a little of that in, you know, and have it inform it. So sort of do a mod 2060s, I guess, might be sort of the way to go. I think the key element for any sort of assassin or heist story is that the world has to feel real enough that you're not just shooting at pop-up targets, which is, again, yet reason 99 million to use Earth, and ideally an Earth of a social milieu that you'd recognize. You could all be assassins in, I don't know, um, uh, Ulukbek's court in Bokhara in the 14th century, but if no one knows anything about that, you might as well be being assassins in some city in the Hyborian Age, because actually you'd get better response from that, because people are worried that Conan would show up and out-assassinate everybody. Right. It, it all depends on what they consider grounded, so a completely unfamiliar historical period seems as exotic and unreal as any um, imaginary setting, and as she suggests, there are uh, real settings where it could feel real. I, I would be tempted myself to, again, I guess just because I love the vibe of this movie so much, to do an alternate reality 1960s. Right, yeah, where after World War II, basically all the Israeli guys hunting down Nazi war criminals and the Nazi war criminals hunting down the Israelis got so bad that the UN just said, all right, anyone who wants to hunt anyone down has to get a license, and then they can go hunt people down and stop killing innocent people in the crossfire. Then something like that, that, they, you know, you have this code that got developed in 1949 or whenever, and so by 1960 or whenever Mar Marcello Mastroianni is killing people in his white suit with his sunglasses, it's an accepted part of our history. And then the fun can be, you know, all right, if you're licensed to assassinate other assassins, are you licensed to kill President Kennedy? Can you buy a license like that? Is the Assassin's Guild, you know, are they... Uh, pliable in that way, and, and make it a lot of it about sort of the internal politics of the Assassin's Guild, too. That could be kind of fun. Right, and I would be inclined to really, you know, set up, there's a very rigid set of rules, and then the the thing that has never happened before in the history of the game is when the rules get broken. Right. So that uh, somebody uses the game as an excuse to, you know, set up a situation where not only is their target going to be in this particular plaza at a particular moment, but look, there's the Yakuza chieftain or the government official who you're actually trying to uh, kill, but make it look like it was a, you know, just merely manslaughter because they were caught in the crossfire. Right. So that you'd want to set out, you know, what the rules of the assassin game are, what the incentives are within the game, and have an initial session or two in which 
you are uh, playing within the game and then everything goes topsy-turvy and either... So, for example, you might then be the people that the Assassin's Guild approaches to track down the assassins who broke the rule and assassinated the government official, or you might be the guys who got suckered into seemingly having killed the government official, right? There could be someone mm-hmm. on the on the grassy knoll, as it were. Right, the classic um, patsy scenario. Right, so that you're trying to escape the Assassin's Guild at the same time you're trying to hunt down and prove that the, uh, you know, a rival bunch of assassins uh, were the ones who framed you for this. So there's all sorts of story potential in that. And I think you probably still want to do it as kind of a mini series because I don't know how long you would be able to keep running keep variations fun. on yeah. this. I think that another possibility, I mean, moving away from our, our excellent game within a game setting, which we've basically developed now, as it turns out, we're so good at this. Um, I think that you could also have something where the act of assassinating is in some way an act that lets you into the secret world. And while, and I was sort of thinking of something where you're uh, assassins, it's in medieval uh, Italy or somewhere like that, where you have to, there's no guns, you can't do anything really at a distance. And when you kill someone with a knife that's made from a specific kind of metal, if they bleed purple, they're actually an alien imposter, right? The aliens have sort of filtered their pod people down into medieval Italy, and they're beginning to filter out, and maybe they're building weird steampunk equipment in the background, and so that's a way that you can draw in the kids, is that the aliens are trying to uplift Renaissance Italy so they can get back to uh, to space. And you, the assassins, are like, I don't want to be uplifted, I like medieval squalor, and are going around taking out these aliens one by one, and maybe there's a rival gang of assassins who actually uh, want the Renaissance to come because they're mad at the church or whatever else reason. And so you would then have sort of a, not so much a licensed assassin situation, but a situation where the abilities of law and order are so constrained by feudal obligation and just by the limits of technology that you can wander around the street with your special alien killing knife and your awesome dual fighting sword. And then it's like, well, I, it, you know, is this guy an alien? Is he not an alien? And you have sort of a, a little m- murder mystery, uh, shooting gallery kind of a feel to it, maybe. And that invites the question of sympathy because being a, uh, in real life, being a contract killer is not admirable. No, you're, you're bad people. Uh, but, you know, the appeal of uh, investigation followed by violence, of course, is um, well installed in, in, in role-playing. Uh, and, so and, the question and we is, are doing our best to continue to install it, to indeed, reinstall yes. and upgrade. So your idea of, you know, the sort of killing off the secret aliens invites the idea of you, you can create a setting that makes it sympathetic for you to be engaged in this activity. Another uh, setting that you could use that I think would be really interesting would be the uh, aftermath of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, where, um, and you can do that in two ways. One is either you are the assassins for the resistance, that there are a small percentage of the population who are real, original, non-pod people, and your job is to hunt down and kill the sort of... uh, maven or connector pod people without whom the rest of the pod people can't survive and so you're trying to hunt them down you're being hunted by a pod secret police squad and uh, if you manage to kill enough of the the right pod people they'll have to fly back to space and go which is basically i guess a modern version of what you've already proposed although it it sets up great uh, subject lines like mod versus pod if we again set it in mastriani's 60s with the sunglasses and 
you can tell you're good guys because you can secretly wear bright colors. Right. Or you could flip that again and you could have the, you know, the pod people have just started to arrive and the government officials have managed to, to stop them from spreading. But now a number of them have been infiltrated into to key positions of power. And again, that's just another, you know, five degree iteration of uh, what you suggested. But in all of these cases, they are ones in which you're uh, tracking down people and killing them in laborious uh, ways, uh, perhaps ways that can be written off as accidents or ways that at least you're not getting caught. In all of these instances, uh, this is a lot more sympathetic than being a hitter for the mob. Um, another question that arises is that, of course, the, the Hitman movie is rarely a team or ensemble piece. It's usually about a solo existential character uh, going out into the world and... Uh, possibly accompanied by Natalie Portman, but usually not. Possibly. And then, you know, at some point there's a turn where either the assassin decides to become redeemed when uh, he, he blinds the girl accidentally and then has to pay for her operation, or he his bosses betray him, usually both, and mm -hmm. then he sort of uh, turns around. So how would you... Uh, is there a way to preserve the assassin feel with a uh, group of player characters, or is this, in fact, so tailor-made for one-on-one -on -one play that, that that's really what you want to do with it? If you've got maybe one or two players and a GM, that this the very solitary nature of the genre becomes a thing that works in your favor. I think it works really well for one-on-one -on -one play, obviously, for all the reasons that you cite. I think especially in our game scenario, the Assassin game scenario, it could work kind of well for a game where the table contract allows PvP such that, you know, you'd pay some mechanical price for having to set up your, your buddy or whatever, but it's sort of a, a version of the trust mechanics from Knights Black Agents, but you might have fun with a game where you're all in the Assassin game and you're all together, you're all on a team, but it would be like, you know, in the NFL, if, you know, the quarterback could suddenly shoot the halfback halfway through and, you know, get the points, you know, on some invisible scoreboard. Right. Or, or just like Survivor, right, where you, you ally together at the beginning and try to defeat the other team. But then when you succeed in defeating the other team, the alliance has to break up because then they have to fight each other. Mm -hmm. And then you'd have to want to make sure that, A, the GM was good enough and, B, the rule set was good enough to support one player being hunted by the other players. That somehow, you know, they would not be immediately just sort of dragooned into some sort of okay corral situation and gunned down like dogs, that there would have to be some sort of, you know, either within the game there are rules, you know, there's a grace period, and then make a, a, a PvP contest fun, and I don't know necessarily how you would bring that in to play. I mean, in theory, it could be as fun as any, you know, um, uh, fight scene, but I think you'd want to make it a longer than a fight scene. I think you'd want it to make a, a series of of, of episodes. And I don't know if you do that by troop play or, or how you would handle that, but I think that would be a fun, you know, again, sort of a half spin on, on the assassin game mechanic. For this, I'm seeing a card mechanic where you have a deck of cards and each uh, card has a, a situation attached to it. And it might be a location, it might be a weapon. And then there's some way to determine how strong a factor each of those things is, and each has an, uh, can be used for an attack or a defense. Right. And so that you're playing cards in a sort of trump fashion to simulate the nature of the scene to come. So if it's a pursuit scene, you know, you play this card because you're the, uh, the pursuer and this is, 
uh, what you use to pursue, and then the player who is being pursued has to play a response card, and the interaction of those two cards then determines what you narrate as the, as the uh, outcome of, of the scene. Right. Yeah. And although we are running very, very close, uh, like dangerous, cool assassins, uh, indeed, to the edges of, of the question uh, by getting into mechanics. And I think that that's exactly what I was thinking, is you need a card space or a board space, some kind of thing that you can take the tactical tacticality down into a way where everyone understands, yes, you know, you know, rock does beat paper or whatever. But I, I want to go a little way back towards the setting question, because you mentioned something a while back about um, uh, moral sympathy for hunting down people. And it, it and again, speaking of those stylish 60s, that reminded me of the very best part of X-Men First Class, where Magneto is just going from town to town whacking out Nazis. I think that could be a fun thing, where you're your setting is, is still the stylish 60s, and you're the other descendants of the super experiments, and then you with your buddy Magneto are going around killing the Nazi supers, the Nazi mutants, or the Nazi supermen, and make it a sort of suicide squad covert superhero uh, old-school Steranko shield type story, but you know, you're hunting down Nazi super beings, and that's that's a good, another good sympathetic thing, and it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you can't tell them except for one of them would be your, your shapeshifty one, and he might be anybody. But, you know, it's for to take down each individual super, you have to come up with the individual attack that's going to work on them. Because the Nazis would have made their own guys really, really powerful, and the mutants who survived the experiments would be weak and crippled in some way. And so it takes a bunch of you ganging up to really take down Nazi Hulk or Nazi uh, uh, elongated man, or whatever it is. And uh, as people are being hunted, we've stayed in one location for too long, but before we move on, one last thing is to flip the idea of legalized assassination, another thing that makes a, a, an assassin game possible is just the complete breakdown of order, so that if you are uh, in a war zone or in a failed state, uh, then the consequences of being caught by the authorities melt away because there are no real authorities right. and then there's just sort of a an open kind of battleground in which you are uh, fighting a covert war against well not even covert it's just uh, it's not it's a, a limited war a war of one against one and uh, you have x number of people on your side and they have x number of people on their side and you're fighting for dominance uh, without authority and that can be like your lincoln county war or your erps versus clantons or in the Old West, or it can be two teams of um, uh, rival mercenaries, uh, Feathermen style, uh, battling it out in Somalia or Syria now. Well, I think I hear Ursula Andrews clambering up my fire escape, so I'd better go and deal with that, and when we get back, we'll launch into another segment. like anime-style mecha? Mecha with speed lines? With cutscene awesomeness? Mini missile spreads? How about humanoid robots doing cartwheels? I see your cartwheel robots and raise you laser swords. Okay, but also weird genetically modified pilots duking it out. If you answered, oh my gosh, yes, to all of these questions, then Mecha by Heroic Journey Publishing is the game for you. They're kickstarting Mecha Kaiju, the newest supplement for the Mecha RPG. Enjoy the experience of linking, also known as drifting. And punching sea creatures from outer space 
in the face. If battling giant monsters and giant mecha is your thing and you haven't played mecha, then this Kickstarter is for you. Tiers include the Mecha Kaiju expansion. The expansion plus base game. Or the new expansion plus base game plus all currently published expansions. So clamber into your giant robot cockpits and blast on over to Mecha Kaiju expansion Kickstarter from Heroic Journey Publishing. The scraping of nickels together and that horrible scorching scent that you get in the air when you're behind on a deadline tell us that we're once more about to enter our business of gaming segment. This week, and we're going to probably touch on things that we've talked about a bit before in the podcast, so I hope people bear with us here, but every so often, Ken, I'm sure this happens to you as well, I get approached by people looking for mentoring or advice in terms of how to do what we do. Uh, We both uh, create role-playing games for a living, and that makes us uh, rare birds indeed. And uh, other people sometimes come and ask me how to do it, and it occurred to me that it would be much more convenient to (laughs) have a podcast URL to show them rather than have to answer the question every time I get approached, because I uh, try to be friendly and supportive. But uh, the challenges of making a living designing role-playing games means that I have to be a ruthless manager of my time. So in the interest of efficiency, let's all in one place, lay out the hows and wherefores of uh, getting involved uh, in the tabletop industry as a designer. And Ken, I bet the first thing that I would say is the same first thing that you would say. So how about you say it? Marry a good woman with good health insurance. Although in Canada, I guess that just means marry the queen, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to marry the governor general. It's a little different. You know, so, so far, so good. I mean, your governor general seems nice. Right. So so that's the amusing way of saying this is not a lucrative profession. <laughs> it is cultural work. And like being a writer or a painter or an actor, uh, there may be one or two people who do very well with it and very well in our field. Uh, is a nice middle class living. An even smaller number. Well, there are a few people who've hit it big, but a very, yeah. very few. And to do that, you have to invent a new category of gaming that takes that changes its very face. Yeah. So, yeah, be Richard Garfield, I guess, would be my other piece of advice. Yeah, writing vampire supplements is not going to uh, get you there. So, yeah. you have to do it because you love it, not because it's a real job. Now, I guess there's a whole question of whether real jobs really exist anymore, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, this ain't yeah. one. So, right. my uh, life is one of being very careful about uh, money and my lifestyle, and so is the life of everybody who makes a living making tabletop role-playing games. So if that doesn't discourage you, uh, what's the next piece of advice? Well, I think the next piece of advice that I usually say is that now in 2014, the answer is so much different from 1994 when I started, you know, beginning the process. Some of it still holds. Look for people who want material and try and supply it to them. But it's even easier and so much, I think, more lucrative even to build your own material and see if you can sell it. And the the point is that between all of the open systems that are out there, and obviously D20 and virtually every F20 version of that are open, BRP is open, Fate is open, Traveler, I think, is open in a way, although you can't use the Traveler universe, you can use the rules. There's a number of other open rule sets. Gumshoe and, and Drama System? Exactly. Gumshoe and Drama System are open now. There are uh, games that are relatively easy to get a license for if you 
produce anything remotely professional. I'm, I'm thinking of uh, Savage Worlds here, but there are others that are also. Uh, Chaosium has really opened up the garden for people who want to plant Cthulhu-flavored flowers in, in their systems. Uh, so that's another great uh, possibility. Find a game that you know well and that other people play already and write something really excellent for it. And that doesn't even get into the question of completely independent uh, tabletop role-playing game design. And you can look at someone like Luke Crane or Emily Kerr Boss or um, uh, John Wick, and they've built pretty decent followings and pretty decent uh, careers out of that. Although I think every one of them has probably had, you know, day jobs or side jobs. Luke, of course, now is at uh, our good friends at Kickstarter. Well, uh, John went from uh, working at a call center to now he makes a living being John Wick, that uh, through uh, the miracle of crowdfunding, he uh, is able to find enough people who love his stuff to uh, pay him sort of directly to do it. So that raises the question of uh, the new, you know, the way that we broke in no longer exists. In general, the question, how do I get your job in any cultural sector is, uh, well, I actually broke the door on the way in, mm-hmm. and I'm currently occupying that slot. Uh, you're going to have to find a different way in. But in general now, it's about the same thing, community, in a new way, so that you still need to plug yourself into a community of people who are uh, going to, at some point, become consumers of your work. And uh, you can either, uh, you know, there's all sorts of people who build... Uh, different communities with different social tenors, I would say, you know, be lovely and charming, but there are uh, communities that are uh, based (laughs) around the opposite of that and are still successful. Um, But whatever community you want to enter and gain social capital in through whatever means, you have to enter one in order to get known and start to uh, get people excited about the way you think and the way you write and the way you create. But once you've done that, and I'm not talking about leveraging your brand or or making your Twitter feed into a, a hellish dystopia of ads for your own stuff. But once you have done that, you will begin to know what that community values in a game, and you'll begin to be able, and you, you'll say, well, there's nine things that I'm interested in, just to hypothesize, and the two of them, just by the odds, are going to be things that literally no one else is interested in, or that you have to physically write a column for ten years in Pyramid to get other people interested in. And then once you've done that, haha, now you're the guy who sits on the catbird seat of the mine that you dug. But the other stuff, it might be Cthulhu, or it might be space battles, or it might be whatever, some aspect of the general gaming culture that you are also good at, that you also like, then you contribute to that. And you either contribute to it with an independent game, or you contribute to it with a, a, a game or a product for something that has a free license. Produce that to the best of your skill. Make sure that you understand the difference between layout you can do and professional layout. And if there is a visible difference, which there almost certainly is, pay the layout guy a little, a couple of nickels. Same thing with editing, covers, everything else. But it's not going to cost you nearly as much to do it. And in this magical new world of crowdfunding, it's not going to cost you very much up ahead of time to do it. And so you, you have huge options for basically producing one really popular or one really well-respected product and being uh, pretty much Ken and Robin already, because you've got a following of people who are like, hey, yeah, he made that ex- excellent uh, space battle game, and I want to now be a part of his space battle universe and, and know uh, what kind of space battle things are going on, and you're on various message boards, or your uh, blog is read by other fans of space battles, whether it be, you know, David Drake or Eve Online or both, and then you are able to sort of 
talk to those people and say, I'm building a tabletop game that's about all this stuff that, that we already like. And if they like you, they'll say, sure, why not? And if they're tabletop gamers, maybe they'll be drawn into the space battle world. So I, I think it's, it's, it's about sort of building your, uh, what do I want to say, library, resume, CV, out of blocks that you're already interested in and can already engage people on. And once you do that, the uh, there are still companies that are looking for people to write supplements for them in mm-hmm. a way that, uh, you know, there was, there was more of that when we came up, but it still exists. And there are still companies looking for people who are uh, professional, who write to spec, who write what is desired of them, and who deliver clean copy on time. And in order of preference, on time is actually the most important thing. <laughs> then it is uh, writing what was actually asked of you. And we've talked about this before. Look at the game that you're working on. Don't try to do necessarily your take on it unless you're asked to do that. But rather, see what it is that they're looking for. See what the formula is, and then work within the boundaries of that formula. So uh, don't uh, if they're looking for a Cthulhu adventure, don't give them back something that is really a Scooby-Doo adventure about land developers. Another thing is to uh, be personable and fun to work with. If you write, you know, sort of snide comments in your cover letters about how you could do uh, a Cthulhu adventure much better than those idiots that the publisher is currently hiring, that doesn't actually speak well of you. And also, those idiots may be the ones reading your email at that point, because the publisher may have said, um, why don't you develop this book? And then they'll just forward you on the email from, you know, would-be contributors. Right. And so now, in a way, I probably shouldn't advise uh, people who are hostile and clueless from revealing that to publishers because I have an interest in screening out the hostile <laughs> and, and clueless and avoid things that sort of uh, point you out as a fan who hasn't really investigated how the business works, like assuming that all the companies are in fierce competition with each other or thinking that similar uh, designs are evidence that someone has stolen somebody else's idea. Uh, Those are sure signposts of the rank amateur. And I guess the bigger, more positive point there is research the industry. Go to conventions and talk to people who you want to work with and uh, learn how it works. Or whose career you want, you know, buy Robin and I drinks. That always helps. Right. And at a convention, you're much less likely to get, well, here's a link to my podcast where I talk about the <laughs> 15 minutes and you can get your specific answers addressed. But either way, it is about uh, finding opportunities to, to use your creativity. Now, in the new universe, though, some of those things kind of, uh, the idea of working with a publisher has some advantages in that if they have a deadline, that forces you to do something. Uh, And if they have an editorial process, that requires you to meet a certain standard. And in the Kickstarter universe, you're going to have to find ways to be your own setter of deadlines and your own assurance of quality. Now, in terms of quality text, that means you should hire someone to edit and proofread it. Uh, and those are different tasks. Uh, and in terms because of... Because letting the iron hand of the market edit and proofread your text, while eventually effective, uh, makes no one happy in the short and medium run. Right. And there are things you can do. You can crowdsource the proofreading with your fans, but that has its own uh, pitfalls as well. But you're going to, in this new universe, you're not going to necessarily acquire the discipline that was forced into uh, Canonai. And so you're <laughs> going to have to find other ways of uh, making that happen because on Kickstarter, you can propose a project, get it funded, 
and uh, 75% of Kickstarter projects deliver late. So it can be very easy to kind of get behind the eight ball. And uh, if there's no, you know, I guess your backers asking you where the book is uh, kind of become a whip cracked over you. But the downside of that is if it becomes too emotionally fraught, then you can sort of go into a shame spiral that causes nothing to get done. So you're going to have to be even more of a self-starter in the new uh, economy than than you generally have to be to be a cultural worker who gets paid for it. And that requires a lot of discipline and involves a lot of sitting in the chair and actually doing it and keeping at it and being able to fend off all the distractions of daily life that keep you doing other tasks that are not resulting in an end product and also, you know, against the as soon as you sit down and start to write, there's always the possibility of failure and you have to learn to push through that. And we discussed that in more detail in a previous segment on discipline and morale. Yeah, I think the uh, another you know question you ask yourself in, in addition to do I really want to do all this nonsense for at best a, a nice middle class lifestyle is if you've already got a day job that rewards those behaviors of discipline and, and productivity and, and obeying um, uh, the, the rules of, of, of being other people and not your beautiful creative muse, um, you know, harness those skills. I mean, I know a couple of writers who at their day job, you know, maintain computer systems or they're project managers and they have those, those mental, uh, equipments. Uh, don't be fooled by some romantic myth that writers have to be, you know, lay about drunks with, uh, drug and girl problems. If you've got your life pretty much together, you may find that you will also have your writing career pretty much together if you approach it, you know, from the get-go as though it's a job that you're going to as opposed to an escape from your real world. Now, you ideally want your prose to feel like an escape from the real world because that's what you're selling, but if, you know, the escape from the real world only happens at your fingertips and doesn't escape back in the rest of your body, you'll, you'll be doing yourself, I think, a lot of favors. And if you're not that kind of person, those are, you know, like being gentle uh, or genteel and pleasant people anyway. I think those are just generally good virtues to hang on to in this brave new modern world in which uh, you may have to go out and scramble for your own job, whether you wanted to or not. Well, I think those are all of the basics that I would tell someone first starting out. And uh, therefore, uh, we can uh, put this one in the archive and I'll have it at the ready the next time I get one of these emails. And then we can move on to our next segment. of Selectric Keys, the glug, glug, glug of bourbon, tell us that we have entered the How to Write Good hut of how writing to be good. <laughs> yes. Fortunately, not the syntactical integrity hut. That's a whole different hut. No, no thank God. The synt- well, that's a tedious hut in its, own, in its own right. Here in the How to Write Good hut, we are entering on the question of how not to be contrived while you're writing in the good hut. How to keep contrivance at bay. Robin, what do you do to keep contrivance away as opposed to 
merely being a guy who doesn't write like that. Right. In order to uh, hunt down and kill contrivance, we first be able to have to define what it is. And so for the purposes of this segment, I'm going to define it as a plot device that is obvious as such. And one in particular that in dramatic storytelling or storytelling in which you are watching the characters move from different emotional points, that the plot mechanism is obviously forcing certain confrontations to occur. So that when you have a pure drama, one of the films that I saw at the film festival is, uh, and it'll probably be out in general, at least by the time this drops, is a unfortunately not great legal melodrama with Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Duvall called The Judge. And at its heart, it's a a father-son story in which the uh, son, who has always been deprecated by the father, must uh, prove his worth to his father by defend, who's a judge, uh, by defending him on a manslaughter charge. Unfortunately, that emotional core of the story is larded down with a ton of different plot devices. So he's the Downey Jr. character. There's an old flame in town. There's there's the question of uh, the parentage of uh, the old flame's daughter. There's the uh, uh, one brother whose uh, ball career he ruined in a car accident. There's uh, the other brother is the classic cute, filmic, mentally handicapped character who's a secret truth teller but has pathos attached to them. And I think I'm even leaving out a couple of... There's like seven different plot contrivances, obvious devices that have been introduced to try and make the relationship between those characters happen, but it doesn't, none of that needs to be there. And so in a way, a contrivance is a sign that you have started out writing a drama, but are writing a melodrama, an emotional story in which people collide because the plot is requiring them to uh, collide. In other genres, contrivance is not only uh, acceptable, but good. In the world of sort of classic comedy, because you want everything to work out properly in the end, if you have, for example, a misunderstanding that puts characters at odds with each other, it's fine in comedy because the misunderstanding can be resolved and you can have your happy ending and your wedding at the end and seeing how the contrivance is navigated is the source of the comedy. But in a drama, if characters are at loggerheads because there's some sort of a misunderstanding between them, if they don't really under, one character thinks the other character has done X when they've really done Y, that's actually not interesting drama. It's the heart of contrivance because it's a manufactured situation to create conflict where logically none should exist. So, Ken, do you feel that's a a good sort of baseline definition of what a contrivance is? Yeah, I I think a contrivance is uh, perfectly adequately described the way that you did as a plot device that looks like a plot device. And, again, in some genres, the plot device that looks like a plot device is part of it, and that's not just the classic comedy, it's also the shipwreck story. There has to be a shipwreck, or else we aren't in a shipwreck story. So, no matter how redonkulous the circumstance of the shipwreck, that's not really the point. That just gets you there. The same deal with a um, uh, with a story about, you know, uh, uh, an, an orphan, uh, you know, it's sort of a fairy tale world. The details of his orphaning are not the key development. The fact is that he has to be presented as someone with no resources to call on in the fairy tale world. And so that's just sort of the thing you set up, the glowing briefcase in a, in a Hitchcock thriller, the MacGuffin is a contrivance that hangs the, the old plot lantern right there on itself and says, yes, 
all right, I'm, I really just exist to drag things through the story, and if you've shinied up your MacGuffin, that's really all you can expect from it. There's no point where you sit down and say, well, you know, given that the Ark is from God, what's wrong with letting Hitler have it? God's not going to let Hitler win, because he's God. And if God doesn't isn't God, then... Why are we fighting Hitler? The whole, the whole, you know, the, the whole cosmological basis of opposition to cruelty goes away. So, you know, you you don't want to open up these these contrivances too much in a genre in which they're dependent, or or type of story even in which they're dependent. But I think that you can look at a plot device and say, for example, in the Harry Potter stories, there is a plot device in which Harry, for whatever reason, never tells Dumbledore what's going on, and this happens like four books in a row and by the fourth book it's like by now harry knows that telling dumbledore fixes the problem he's not an idiot he and the only reason he's not doing it is in order to get him into more colorful problems and so if you're writing that kind of thing if you're like oh no if this character who is wise and good finds out it'll short circuit the story you need to have a more convincing reason and if you're talking yourself into believing that it works that means it doesn't work you have to just really ruthlessly, not just murder your darlings, but let them show up and solve problems if they potentially could. And if they can't, make that a real part of the story, not a contrived part of the story, not just, oh, uh, Dumbledore was on a mission in space, and then he comes back. That's that that's lazy, sloppy writing. Yeah. Um, as you suggest, um, first of all, that the a contrivance is not necessarily a contrivance if it is the premise of the story, right? And like coincidences, which are a subset of the contrivance and a particularly obvious one, you're entitled to one. Uh-huh. And you want to put it as early at the beginning of the story as you possibly can. So as soon as you can set up that the characters are all looking for a black bird or, you know, that this story is all about finding the lost will that will prove the inheritance, that's it. You get that one contrivance, that one obvious plot element, and from then on in, you just have to develop the logical consequences of that plot device. So it's a MacGuffin at the beginning. It's a contrivance if you have to throw it out in the mid-going in order to keep your plot going and have your plot make sense. So as you suggest, there are these... Uh, if you if you sense the answer to a, well, why doesn't he just do X? And then you have to come up with an elaborate justification for that. That's a contrivance. Mm-hmm. And so what you really need to do is to turn that on its head and go, well, he does do X, and this is what happens, right? So that if all of your stories depend on him not telling Dumbledore, you've got to have him tell Dumbledore, and then there's another complication that arises from that that results in that not solving the problem. So that also suggests that if you have to install a bunch of plot flipping around in order to make sure that an obvious course of events that would solve the problem doesn't come into play, uh, that means that you've got a deus ex machina at the end of your story, uh, which is another form of contrivance, which yes. is the left field solution to everything, right? If having, if just telling Dumbledore and have him solve the problem is the solution to the story, you, it, again, it's a flawed narrative. And you have the wrong protagonist. And, and I'm <laughs> taking your word for this, by the way, because I haven't read the Harry Potter book, so I'm not directly slagging Harry Potter. Well, I, I stopped after book five. So that is another, you know, sort of classic thing you want to avoid. So whenever you're, you're trying to justify a plot point, the plot point is weak, and the harder you try to justify it, the more obvious that weakness becomes. Another contrivance that uh, is very obvious is the, the either the Mary Sue, in which 
your character, your protagonist, just happens to have your idealized politics, your idealized look, your idealized uh, success with the opposite or preferred gender, whatever it happens to be, that is a type of contrivance because what you're doing is you're establishing a character whose response to problems will be merely to sort of press their amazingness against them until they go away. And that can work if your character begins by being Sherlock Holmes, but even he has to get out of his uh, out of his study and scramble around and engage in fisticuffs and have genuine obstacles. If you look at the number of times in the Holmes stories, and Holmes is sort of the classic Mary Sue character, the number of times in the Holmes stories where Doyle is smart enough to have Holmes run into a brick wall or express frustration or do something unlovely to move that Mary Sue away from Doyle, uh, such that you now believe that Sherlock Holmes is an actual character with actual uh, wants and needs and desires and who can be thwarted by, you know, either, you know, <laughs> Irene Adler or occasionally by Moriarty, but sometimes just by the sheer cussedness of the universe, that makes all of his awesomeness more believable. And then when you have a character who exists merely to become the idealized love interest or the idealized telepathic cat who shoots lasers out of his eyes and fights ghosts or whatever the thing is, a, a, a character or a, an object, although it's usually the same effect, that exists only to be a a, um, a, a balm and prop to the protagonist, that at the very least leeches drama and often is also a contrivance. The more things you hang off of a given character. This isn't TV. You don't have a limited budget for hiring actors. I'm a little le leery about folding the Mary Sue protagonist into the, the umbrella of contrivances. I think it actually may be a separate writing problem and one that brings us to the question of, you know, what's the difference between a Mary Sue character and an iconic hero? I guess in a sense, a, a Mary Sue character, though, leads to contrivance insofar as you were, instead of creating a plot situation that artificially makes the situation more complicated than it really ought to be. You, the, that's sort of the, the inverse of that, where you're creating plot situations where the main character illogically is able to be successful in overcoming obstacles. So I guess in that, that sense, you could argue that the, the character that you're stacking the deck in favor of, uh, that you are creating contrivances in order to to, to do that. And that's certainly another writing issue that maybe we can talk about in more uh, detail in a, a later uh, segment. But, that, but that's, uh, I think that that's sort of what I was getting at, is that the Mary Sue is not necessarily a contrivance, but all the things that have to happen to keep that character a Mary Sue, they're all contrivances, and they all become right. contrivances. And there are certain genres, like the, the melodrama, for example, is basically a genre of emotional interaction where the emotional interactions are governed by plot devices and so that and the, the and the word melodrama is like the railroading and role-playing game it's had a mm -hmm. bunch of different meanings attached to it over the years but i think the main uh, issue now is that it's mostly uh, works where you have cultures where people are still bound by social convention and their struggle against social convention is sort of an emotional battle against obstacles but it doesn't they don't seem like a contrivance in that context because those external obstacles are very very real whereas in uh, the western world the romantic comedy has and and the r dramatic romance too have increasingly struggled because the principle of keeping the lovers apart uh, becomes more and more difficult in a world where <laughs> social conventions have sort of melted away right it's very very hard to to, to have those sorts of of outside constraints without 
themselves becoming contrivances. Right. So that you see, for example, in the, the True Blood TV show, initially seems to be playing with something interesting because it's in- introducing, you know, a new supernatural class struggle and social barriers and conventions that need to be overcome. But as that show increasingly spiraled into uh, decrepitude, <laughs> uh, the obvious ways in which each season there was a new way to keep Suki and Bill, Bill apart uh, became sort of a textbook example of a contrivance where the entire you know premise of the story arc for each season was what are we going to do this time to keep them apart whereas i think uh, a much more interesting approach would be well now they're together and what problems does that lead to but of course that is the challenge of having a super extended romantic story because the romantic comedy really should be a tight or romantic drama in this case should be a pretty tight construction where there is one barrier between them that is either overcome or if you have a sad ending not and the more things that you have to do to sustain your premise and keep it going that's again the textbook definition of a contrivance um so before we contrive to move to the next are there any uh, final observations or uh, examples of something that you thought were either uh, did really well in avoiding contrivance or uh, did poorly in uh, erecting one? Well, I had a couple of observations sparked by what you were talking about with uh, Suki and Bill, and I'm thinking of, uh, on the topic of Mary Sue characters, um, Peter Whimsey, Dorothy Sayers' character, falls in love with a dowdy, unassuming writer of crime fiction, which is delightful. Uh, and if you are Dorothy Sayers, and, no, and you are not Dorothy Sayers, oh gentle listener, though I love you dearly, even Dorothy Sayers realized she couldn't keep Harriet and Peter apart and that she had to give into the lesser contrivance of having them be happily married than the greater contrivance of Harriet for no reason that anyone can tell rejecting Peter's amorous advances for novel after novel as individual murder mystery solving contests uh, become more and more grotesque meets cute. So, Avoiding the one contrivance can lead you into the other contrivance. It's like Scylla and Charybdis. And I guess I wanted to close off by saying, of course, a melodrama is classically, according to Aristotle, a drama set to music. And so if you feel like the beats of your story are following an outside uh, schema, a waltz, you know, they're set to waltz time or to some other time than the inherent uh, drive of the narrative, you are probably contriving it such and should look at that. Right, because what you've done is you've come up with your big moments in your story, and then you've struggled to connect them, rather than having one situation that flows out of another situation out of another situation. And uh, although, you know, in a lot of writing there is, you know, you will have sort of images or scenes that you want to work toward, and you may sort of move them around on a, a virtual or a literal space in order to put them together, you've got to be really, really careful about uh, how many of those you have and how hard you have to struggle to get to them. And uh, you may find that you want and uh, wind up ab- abandoning some of the big movements, uh, moments you wanted to work towards. Otherwise, when you, the, all of the machinery that it takes to get the characters there uh, will show to the uh, viewer or the reader. And uh, another problem that you sort of uh, touched on that I want to uh, highlight a bit more is uh, contrivances make your characters seem stupid because mm-hmm. in order for there to be a misunderstanding, your sympathetic characters 
have to misunderstand or they have to uh, blow a gasket for no reason at their loved ones or they have to get uh, jealous over this incident of which there is uh, nothing to be jealous over. And so that is also part of idiot plotting. And idiot plotting is a, another form of contrivance that I... Have we addressed that in an episode I, previously? I, I, I don't know. I don't remember. Uh, but we, we may, may be have. idiots ourselves at this point, yes. not to remember. At, but At this point, we, we should perhaps then... Um, uh, go off and uh, thumb through our manuscript to see if we've actually covered this story before, which is a classic example of contrivance. Oh, yes, exactly. Let's go. As we creak our way up the rickety staircase, we look up way up to the glowering portrait of Madame Blavatsky, and we open the door and sit in a creaky, somewhat cobwebbed leather chair across from the consulting occultist, who this week will tell us all about synarchy. We've talked on the podcast on numerous episodes about the idea of there being ascended occult masters. Uh, synarchy is the idea that they're uh, behind the scenes uh, running everything, kind of like the ascended in uh, Feng Shui. So, Ken, what would you point to as the kind of uh, origin of the whole idea of synarchy? Well, synarchy uh, in the occult world is mostly ascribed to the uh, writings of our good buddy Alexandra Saint-Yves d'Alvedra, who is also the fellow who, working double-time, introduced the concept of Agartha to the Western world. Someone else had mentioned it in a, in a more uh, obscure occult text, but Saint-Yves d'Alvedra is the guy who, you know, made it part of everyone's uh, go-to business. So he was the popularizer. We owe him for a delightful hollow earth, as well as the notion of synarchy. And, of course, Saint-Yves d'Alvedra, being a right-wing Frenchman, did not believe synarchy was a bad thing. He thought that <laughs> if everyone just agreed that what their place was in the giant pyramid with a glowing eye on top of it, that everything would work just fine. And if you stop having anarchy and have synarchy, sin from the Greek uh, as in sympathy, you would have a better world. And that this better world, and it's basically the model of Plato's Republic and lots of other sort of mystical uh, fascists back to ancient Greece be before there were fascists, but Plato came as close as you could. This model that has been, you know, honored by magicians and and, uh, and similar thinkers of, in the past should be the model that in the magical world, uh, the world should work. And you can see this sort of thing when you look at, you know, this is how heaven is organized. And if we could just all be as magical as heaven, then it would work out. And uh, the Chinese legalists had the same sort of philosophy that if you just straightened everything away, the way out that it is in the he heavenly bureaucracy, the rest of the world will keep on keeping on. And elements of that show up even in other Chinese philosophies like Confucianism with the notion of the mandate of heaven, that ordered nature follows ordered government. Right. If we just put people in charge who had sense, everything would make sense. Right. If we just had a smart guy running things, and I think the career of our smart guys running things should possibly be the silver bullet in that, but it always comes back. Also, self-appointed smart guys are yeah, also well. a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it just don't matter. Anyway, Woodrow Wilson aside, the point we're <laughs> making about synarchy is that the use of synarchy to mean secret conspiratorial bad guys comes out of Vichy France, which, since it was founded by actual secret conspiratorial bad guys, was very nervous that there were other secret conspiratorial bad guys lurking about 
and causing problems. There's no one more paranoid than an actual conspirator. Than an actual conspirator. And in the little uh, small-stakes cesspit that was Vichy France, people were manipulating back and forth and trying to get you know, close to Patin, who was apparently not a really involved decision-maker, and so they were trying to build their own little micro-empire in his um, uh, collaboration estate. And they found something called Le Pacte Synarchique, which was, or Synarchique, I don't know, in the effects and theory of a guy named Jean Coutreau, who was part of a, uh, one of the various, um, uh, uh, fascist, uh, uh, secret societies. Uh, he was a technocrat, uh, not a synarchist, but the implication was we will accuse Jean Coutreau of being a synarchist. And that will uh, demonstrate that our foes in Vichy France are a bunch of uh, Freemasons and Jews, and well, you know where that leads. Right, because a, a, a if you put a pointy hat with stars on it on a technocrat, you get a synarchist. You get a synarchist, exactly. And so the notion basically began as something that uh, sort of the militarist uh, wing around Darlan was using to accuse all the softies in Patin's government of being part of this magical movement that was bigger than France. And, uh, of course, after the fall of Vichy, the same forgeries were then used by communists and left historians generally to accuse Vichy of having been part of this creepy occult reactionary movement. So it, it turns out a lot of people think the way to get power in France is to forge something that your political enemies say. It, it seems to be something that they do. Oh, it's, it's, a society, it's, it's a society that takes letters uh, very seriously. That's right. I guess you have the Académie Française, you get the Synarchique. Yeah, it's documents, manifestos, it's the right. written word, that's the route to power. And, and that's basically what the Synarchy comes from, is that sort of dueling conspirator uh, conspiracy theory in Vichy France, and the sort of a full-blown and beautiful version of, of the synarchist myth comes out in Lynn uh, Picknett and Clive Prince, if I have their names correctly. Uh, I do. And in their works, um, uh, the Stargate Conspiracy and the Scion Revelation especially, that talk about how all of this UFO nonsense and all these ancient Egyptian uh, balloon juice that's fed to you by gullible dupes like Graham Hancock are actually a plot by synarchists who are running the European Union, and they're running, no doubt, the, the, the Eastern East Coast American bankers. So this makes sense out of nonsense. Picnet and Prince are um, European. They're more concerned with the, the, the hated EU and its, and its vile occult um, uh, order. And, of course, the thing is, if you've got any group that is inclined to corporatism or bureaucratism or statism or technocracy, like the EU or like the... American government post Woodrow Wilson, it's very easy, as you say, to put a pointy wizard hat on it and say, they're doing this not because that's the nature of bureaucratic power to turn into corporatism, but that's because they're all magically conspiring together. And, right. and that implies that there's a, a snake, that the snake has a head, and if you cut off the snake's head, if you find, mm -hmm. you know, the, the number one conspirator and root out the conspiracy, that therefore you can have existential victory over an opposing viewpoint. Right. But if it's a world where there's just a bunch of sort of ordinary doofus people uh, shuffling around and occasionally being smart and a lot more often making mistakes or kicking the ball down a road and that the uh, things that you don't like about the world are the result of this uh, chaotic 
shambling, uh, no-headed entity, there's no way to kill that entity. Mm-hmm. And so it's much more uh, appealing to think that if, uh, first of all, you know the truth, if you know that there are conspirators running everything, and also that implies that somehow if you just stand on enough street corners or sell enough copies of your book, that somehow you will land a blow that will uh, kill off the villains and bring about your imagined utopia. And, and also... Uh, the human mind likes narrative, and narratives need antagonists. And so you need a villain to put a face on your antagonism. And you can do that in just plain old political propaganda if you are mad about the the Koch brothers or Bill Ayers as the sort of hidden hand behind um, uh, whichever side of the political struggle you don't like. Even though obviously politics are you know the um, the the making manifest of, of generalized social and economic change. And it's just the way the gears grind, but you want to put a face on it. And it's only a very short way from putting a face on your enemy to saying that face is actually the head of the spider or the head of the snake or the body of the octopus. It's the thing at the middle of the web that if we can get to it, we can fix Europe or America. So on your shelf of Synergy books, uh, what percentage of uh, these conspiracy theorists uh, think that the Synergy is made up of weird occult perverts, and how many of them think it's made up of weird occult perverts who actually wield supernatural power? Um, my, my synarchist uh, writers, or, or pro, uh, people who are generally pro-synarchist, I think that they tend to be weighed more towards weird conspiratorial perverts and less toward weird conspiratorial magic perverts, but that's just because magic is a minority flavor in most conspiracy theory. Now, I have a lot of magic books but almost all of those are written by sympathetic believers. And so they're not going to say, well, good thing magicians are running the EU because look how great the EU is for everybody. <laughs> yes, you, you, you don't want to have to attribute uh, uh, eggplant tariffs or aubergine uh, tariffs to, uh, to your magical side. Right. No, your magical side, if, if you're talking about, uh, if they're writing about magical synergy, they're saying in generally one or another voice of wistfulness, it's a shame that Saint-Yves d'Alvedre was not able to reveal the true uh, light of Agartha to everyone the way that he wanted to before his tragic death <laughs> at the age of what looks like 60, 65. Right. Well, it's also difficult to believe in and sympathize with ascended masters who are in control of everything and square that with the real-world evidence of uh, things being screwed up. Yeah, right. Because uh, it's a lot, this is a, an explanation, then, of why, uh, why things are screwed up and, therefore, a thought as to uh, how they, uh, you know, if you just uh, elim- expose and eliminate the right people, how it might be uh, healed. So are there uh, North American uh, versions of Synarchy, or is it primarily a... Gallic and European trio, the uh, conspiracy branch. There are Americans who uh, have borrowed this, who are well-read in conspiracy. Lyndon LaRouche, uh, I think he probably even uses the word conspiracy, or synarchy, rather. But if you look at, you know, what he accuses the um, uh, ruling elites of doing through their high priests, the psychiatrists, and the ya ya ya, you wind up with a pretty close parallel to the synarchist uh, uh, threat in, in the 1940s, the the notion that these guys with their fancy suits and their outside ties are messing with us is a classic American conspiratorial belief, and it goes way, way back. I mean, it goes pre-Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson got elected, basically, on the belief that people in, in stockings were causing problems in the world, and if you simply um, uh, threw them all out on their hind ends, 
America could be great again. And that's the origins of the uh, Anti-Masonic Party, which is one of the first American political parties. Yeah, the, the Anti-Masonic Party comes out of that same that same belief in that same era, the notion that um, the, there was something about the Virginia elite and the Virginia and Massachusetts elite that was that was not American, that was that was causing problems. And you can see that particular flavor. And again, it comes up on both sides of the political struggle. It's usually whoever's not getting most of the money from the elite uh, makes the argument. But but the sort of I mean I think Lyndon Larouche would be your classic synarchist theorist in America. You've got a, a couple of people who talk about the occult leadership of America, and, and that's where your uh, evangelical uh, conspiracy theorists come in really handy because they believe magic is real and they believe bad people are doing it and they believe bad people are running America. And so those guys are often your your source for something that, depending on how well read they are, they will either mention you know this is the same thing that a Frenchman said in a book about the hollow earth. And it's like, Oh my God, not a Frenchman. How can, ah, ah, my, my pearls. If I had any, I would clutch them. And the fact that I don't have any is the fault of the synarchy. Um, and, and so you, you get sort of a feel out of that, out of your, your Mars and similar religious right. Although right becomes less relevant at that point, but your uh, evangelical conspiracy theorists are, are fond of, of that meme, even if they don't usually call it synarchy. And the, uh, and again, like I mentioned in, in the immediate post Vichy, and now uh, it's it's very very common for communist conspiracy theorists to say this is how the um, uh, the capitalist world is working, and everyone sort of gets together at the Bilderberg Group or wherever, and they divide up the world like um, uh, the colonial powers in the 1880s. And you can see that sort of thinking, you know, filter down into Naomi Klein and various other um, uh, anti-capitalist uh, writings. So it's not. Again, like most conspiracy theories with legs, it, it doesn't depend on your ideology. It just ha- depends on you being mad at th- the guys who are currently running things. Right, because there's a, a genre of political writing that goes beyond identifying the extent to which various figures have real common interests aren't in fact allies, and rather sort of connects the dots, because if you go far enough in any uh, political tendency, eventually you can connect person A to person B and through six layers of separation, connect them to the really dangerous, horrible nuts. Now, the people on the, you know, the most respectable edge of that may want to do really destructive things that are in their own (laughs) interests, uh, but that doesn't, uh, you know, a series of connections can sort of take you too far and and in terms of suddenly seeing everything as a uh, conspiracy. But again, that creates the appeal of, you know, you can sort of smear person A by uh, connecting them through two other connectors to uh, someone really despicable, where really if you think person A is despicable, you should be focusing your energies on, uh, you know, laying out why their uh, their overt positions are, are despicable, which you yeah. probably already feel, whatever side of the, the spectrum you're on. In the world of pop culture, we've got lots of examples of synarchy. Uh, uh, True Detective Season 1 is about a group of occult uh, perverts who are at the uh, highest uh, pinnacles of society. Are there other sort of examples that you would point people to? I, I think you can look at something like the Hellfire Club in uh, Constantine, the the notion that there's these uh, literally occult perverts that are the soul of Britain now uh, that's a that's a, a trope that you see not just in in Hellblazer but you see it in in other sorts of of contexts uh, the the Hellfire Club makes a great uh, shorthand by the way for uh, occult perverts and if we haven't done a Hellfire Club on consulting occultists we certainly should at some point um, there's also the sort of 
construction of the synarchy collaboratively that happens in Foucault's Pendulum. I mean, you should always be reading Foucault's Pendulum, but as a European echo, I think is more alive to the sort of uh, nuances and tenor of that. There's um, a sort of a generic thing that happens in American thriller fiction where the bad guy usually has some sort of a feat taste, often quite overtly sexualized, as in In the Country of the Blind by Michael Flynn, which is a terrific uh, novel about the secret knowledge of history as the occult power in the world. Um, and so all by itself, that's pretty great. But there's a very synarchistic uh, notion that that's what the bad guys who can control history want to do is to is to build this sort of uh, sheepfold universe. And it doesn't uh, take a whole lot of explanation to show how uh, your uh, bad guys in a role-playing game can uh, either be the synarchy or sort of have aspects of the synarchy. Any powerful group that's conspiring and either has a cult power or uh, is just sort of bound together by uh, weirdo rituals uh, fits the bill, and uh, uh, that probably accounts for a good 20% of all bad guy groups in different role-playing games. And I would also mention that when we mention sexual perversion, it's not uh, necessarily a problem that Robin or I have, but it is a almost universal marker of conspiracy, that if you are arguing that some other people are conspirators, you are also and this goes back to Roman times in the West, you are arguing that they are committing sexual perversions, whatever the society at large considers those to be. So you could, you know, have a science fictional world in which, you know, monogamous marriage is a sexual perversion, and that's what you accuse the conspirators of doing. They're all getting together to be monogamous. They're them just out. sneaking around, having bake sales. Holding hands. Holding hands, drinking out of the same milkshake. But in, in the West, uh, the notion that people who are meeting in secret are meeting not just to threaten the state or to do magic rituals, but are also committing sexually deviant acts is something that goes really deep into Western cultural history. And, that, and that's another reason you see that trope show up, even by writers that you strongly suspect have never read word one of uh, either an occult text or actual European history. And I think, obviously, you get something like the the giant pedophile ring in Belgium in the 1990s, the Dutro pedophile ring, and the sort of accusations that high figures in, in the Belgian government, the European government, were involved in it. You know, it, things like that, or like the BBC's, you know, apparent, you know, grotesque uh, outbreak of, of pedophilia only feed that same sort of suspicion. Right. And when you get to child abuse and rape, you are getting to the things that will the uh, in a sexually liberalized society, those things... Uh, for obvious good reasons, are the things that are still taboo because they're right. the things that are uh, they are crimes against unwilling people, and so that is what we you know have left for our cultists and our cynicists to be doing now, and that's I think why increasingly you also get the sense of you know, and of course you'd add human sacrifice to that right. uh, yeah. list of uh, you know horrible rituals that they would be performing uh, with or without cannibalism, because that again uh, casts them as uh, villainously as possible. And uh, if you're going to imagine that they really exist, of course it's a uh, a bond between evil people to uh, participate in horrible crimes together that they then have an incentive to uh, cover up. Again, just like in True Detective or like, uh, you know, Chinatown. Right. And it's also just sort of an evil hazing experience where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're all bonded by this uh, horrific act that you've all committed together. And if that horrific act has magical weight, like human sacrifice does, or like, you know, certain sexual acts, if you ask Crowley, and why not, um, then that 
lets you let your uh, your wizards back in the back door and make it a magical act to engage in these um, uh, behaviors outside the, the gaze of, of a decent, God-fearing, uh, conspiracy book-buying publics. Well, I think uh, unless you have anything else to throw in the hopper, I think we've uh, pretty well uh, explained uh, what the synergy is and alerted all of our uh, readers to its uh, tentacular grasp uh, through the intricacies of EU uh, tariff law and can uh, declare this another podcast well accomplished. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Heroic Journey Publishing. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep assassins from our door by hitting the donate button at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or plot device by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again... We will talk about stuff.